Okay, everybody, welcome. Great to have you with us. Glad you could come. Welcome to those of you who are online at home. Sorry you couldn't be here with us, but we hope you have a good time nonetheless. There's at least one official watch party now going on. Apparently that's a thing, like where people all get together to watch TV. But on this occasion, they're getting together to watch Bible study. So that sounds good to me. Please don't all do that, or I'll be standing here in an empty fellowship hall, like talking to a camera, while you're all sitting at home, you know, sipping margaritas and... Anyway, lonely old me. All right, you should all have one of these, uh, which I emailed out uh, not many minutes ago, actually. You can probably tell what kind of an afternoon uh, your pastor has had, your pastors actually probably have had, by, by the time I, on the, the email that I get round to sending this thing out. Um, so this today was a bit later than normal, but it was a good day, a productive one and a busy one. So um, it's headed Rediscovering Masculinity. This is session three in... Uh, series, men aren't from Mars, women aren't from Venus, so why does it sometimes feel like they are? And with that introduction, perhaps we should pray, and then we're going to read quite a long section from the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 2, the whole of the chapter, and then I'll uh, recap where we've got to, and we'll jump straight in and try and figure out what on earth we're supposed to do with this. So, welcome newlyweds. We've got two bunch of newlyweds, Preston and Emily, David and Sophia. Date of your wedding was three and a half weeks ago. 8th, 21st, yeah, you've beaten to the punch, well done, but um, it's, what a good place for newlyweds to be, a Bible study series on men and women. All right, let's pray, and then we can get started. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for your word, the Bible, for its richness, its relevance, and its depth, and for all that uh, we've learned through it uh, throughout our lives as believers, and for what you have in store for us this evening. We come to you in faith, anticipating good things perhaps anticipating uh, having misplaced ideas overturned or confused ideas clarified or bad ideas just kicked into the long grass somewhere. We certainly hope that we'll have rich and wise and good thoughts cemented deep in our hearts that they may shape our lives in ways which prove fruitful for us and for those whom we love. And we pray that you would work that miracle by your grace through your spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, pardon me one second while I just tighten this up. Ruth chapter 2. You're familiar with the story of the book of Ruth. I know that it it comes at the end of the, uh, probably not quite at the end, sometime towards the end of the judges' period. um, When Israel is in complete chaos. And what Israel really needs is a king, but they need not just any king, they need the right kind of king. And the book of Judges, in the big picture, uh, book of Ruth, sorry, in the big picture tells the history of how Israel got their king. It begins um, at the end of Judges, there's no king in Israel, and the last word of the book of Ruth is David, Israel's first great king. But along the way, it, it's got a family drama as Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons, Marlon and Killian, leave Israel during a famine, Famine go to Moab in search of food. The men all die, but not before they've married. And then upon hearing that the Lord has come to the aid of his people to give to them food, Naomi returns, tries to persuade the two women, Ruth and Orpah, her daughters-in-law, to stay, but Orpah agrees Ruth is more persistent, and they arrive back in Bethlehem 
at the start of the barley harvest at the end of chapter 1, two destitute, foreign, one of them, uh, vulnerable women in a time in Israel's history where you do not want to be a single vulnerable woman, especially in Israel, especially near Bethlehem, footnote, Judges 19. So what's going to happen next? Are these two women going to suffer the fate of so many women refugees in ancient and modern cultures? Or is something or someone going to intervene? Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, that's her husband, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favour. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech, in case you missed it the first time. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favour in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, 
The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they've finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. See Bethlehem, time of the judges. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley, harvest, barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So, I want to set up our study of that passage by just setting the stage um, historically and sketching the contemporary Christian scene or an aspect of it that I want to seek to find words to address in this passage. And to begin with it, I I want to read a well-known section from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. Sounds like you've read Screwtape Letters. Very, very insightful book. Those of you who've read it will know it is a, a fictional collection of letters written as though from a senior devil or demon to a junior devil or demon, uh, giving him advice about how to tempt his patient. They, they call him the patient. And so it's C.S. Lewis's attempt to explain how sinful temptation and evil work by putting himself imaginatively, though with great biblical and theological insight, in the minds of and taking the voices of satanic, demonic beings. And so Screwtape writes these, these uh, letters to Wormwood, his, his nephew, actually, Uncle Screwtape, whose full title is His Abysmal Sublimity, the Undersecretary Screwtape of the Department of Temptation. I don't know what the letters T-E and B-S stand for, but apparently that's his full title. And in each of the letters, he addresses different aspects of uh, the temptations that we might fall into. And in letter number 25, he touches on theological fashions, and he says this. this is, remember, this is a, a, a demon, a devil, talking to another devil about how to tempt people like you and me. The use of fashions in thought is to distract the attention of men from their real dangers. We direct the fashionable outcry of each generation against those vices of which it is least in danger and fix its approval on the virtue nearest to that vice which we are trying to make endemic. The game is to have them all running around with fire extinguishers whenever there is a flood, and all crowding to that side of the boat which is already nearly gunnel under. Some of you don't know what a gunnel is. Hands up if you've ever seen the word gunnel before. Old, kind of older English word. You've seen it before. You've read screw tip letters, right? Um, the gunnel is the, 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 the edge of the boat, the side of the boat. And, and you talk about a boat being gunnel under if it's basically about to go under. And so you see the picture. What the devil and his minions would love to do is to have us acutely conscious of the dangers of things that we're nowhere near in danger of 
and pursuing as virtues those things where, well, really the problem is we've got a little bit too much of that already. And so Lewis goes on, I haven't completed the quote, but he says, thus we make it fashionable to expose the dangers of enthusiasm at the very moment when they are all becoming really worldly and lukewarm. You see? Everyone's lukewarm in their faith, and so the devil warns them about the dangers of becoming a bit too over-enthusiastic about everything. A century later, when we are really making them all Byronic and drunk with emotion, the fashionable outcry is directed against the dangers of mere understanding. Cruel ages are put on their guard against sentimentality, feckless and idle ones against respectability, lecherous ones against Puritanism. That's genius, isn't it? An age that's filled, our age, which is filled with uh, greater impurity and certainly more avenues to exploit impurity than ever before. We're all worried about, maybe, the dangers of being puritanical. We wouldn't want that, would we? And whenever all men are really hastening to be slaves of tyrants, we make liberalism, or old-fashioned liberalism, that is, the main bogey. So you see what he's, what he's saying is we, the way that the devil works is to try and make us most concerned about the things we need least to be concerned about all scurrying around with fire extinguishers in the middle of a flood, all scurrying over to that side of the boat that's already about to fill with water, right? And it seems to me that this is the problem that we have in the Christian church at the present time in relation to Christian masculinity. Masculinity is one of those complex character traits which has many, many different facets. It's exactly the kind of thing which fits the description that I spent some time on in the first of these sessions. This is the third one. So the first session, if if you're listening to this on a recording and want to pause and go back and listen to the first 20 minutes of the first one, you'll be able to feel yourself in. But um, uh, one of the dangers is that we have a... It's not quite unbalanced, but it is something like that. We're terribly concerned to emphasise things that we've really been emphasising a little bit too much. Uh, And part of that is because of our history. And I want to just spend a couple of minutes just talking about the history, what's got us here, and then I'll... uh, No, I won't spend too long highlighting all the the horrible contemporary consequences, but what's happened in the contemporary Christian church is really we're reacting to well over a century of worldly distortion of what men and women really ought to be like. So just think of some of the things that the world has lived through in the last 150 years. We've lived through the first wave of feminism in the early 20th century, late 19th century. And there were some elements of that you might think were wise and praiseworthy, like women's suffrage, and there were elements which were perhaps well-motivated but had negative consequences, like there came to be more of a denigration of the home as a place of meaningful service and calling and vocation, as women saw in the post-industrial West to find jobs like the men had them. And then after the Second World War, because you know, wars have a way of um, bringing biological reality to bear on social trends, right? But after the Second World War, um, you had the, 
in a sense, the rediscovery, in America at least, of more traditional male-female roles in homes and in families. But in the 60s, everything got thrown out the window, and the second wave of feminism surfed that trend with a more um, uh, extreme vision of what men and women's relationships were. So you you remember names like um, Betty Friedan, the feminine mystique, Jermaine Greer, Gloria Steinem. Do you remember her great one-liner? A woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. And that's saying something the the first wave feminists weren't saying. That's not just saying we'd like to have equal representation in democratic processes, which you could make a good argument for. What it's actually saying is something more than that. It's saying actually women don't need men at all. Um, Of course, the 60s was also the era of the widespread availability of oral contraceptives, which were trumpeted explicitly in many quarters as finally levelling the playing field for men and women. So now at last, women are able to be as sexually promiscuous as men with as few lasting consequences. And speaking of consequences, of course, 1973, Roe v. Wade was again... Whatever its proponents said before it was passed, it became a form of contraception and sexual liberation. That is, liberation from moral norms, which is not really any kind of liberation at all. Um, Third wave of feminism in the 90s, again, had some foci that are worth mulling on. because, So, for example, violence against women um, hit centre stage in the third wave of feminism in the 90s, domestic violence particularly sexual harassment in the workplace and so on. People were no longer willing to just sort of tolerate this as this is how it always is. And that's kind of continued with the Me Too movement and so on and so forth. But of course there were negative trends as well, sexual liberation. And the fourth wave of feminism, sometimes so-called, kind of got mixed up with the trans movement, which is another more radical way of not addressing male-female equality so much as just blurring the, the distinction between the sexes at all. Gender and sex now are routinely thought to vary independently of each other. So what this has done has to, is provided a, a secular context in which maleness and femaleness have been uh, radically distorted. The cultural manifestation of male and female distinctives, what we might call masculinity and femininity, are under assault. And men particularly are regarded to the extent that they display distinctive male characteristics like leadership, strength, initiative, uh, uh, leadership in marriage and family, taking responsibility, um, uh, uh, regarding physical size and strength as something that's not a bad thing in itself. All these kind of ordinary, obvious things that for thousands of years have sort of characterized how men ought to have thought of themselves. Those, to the extent that a man thinks about those things as good, he's bad. Hence, toxic masculinity. You've heard the phrase, right? So, what's happened in response to that is quite understandable. That the church has reacted in the way that reactions normally take place. That is to say, attaching yourself to a massive great pendulum and swinging mightily in the other direction. So now, if you do what I did this afternoon and you go to 
twitter.com, which apparently is a website. <laughs> website, two words, that's how I spell it, still old-fashioned. No, I'm joking. And you, you enter the phrase Christian masculinity. I, actually, I, I thought, I, I planned, what I planned to do, I went to Twitter and I thought, what I'm going to do is I'm going to print out a bunch of tweets and put them here as a kind of illustration of how Christians are seeking to um, reassert masculine distinctives against these various ways of feminism and the transgender movement and gender blurring and so on. I, I very quickly realized I could not do that because I didn't have the time to sort through all the tweets and get rid of the ones that contained uh, language which I wasn't prepared to print in front of children from Christians. So what's happened is, in response to the genuine goodness of masculine strength and courage and initiative and boldness and sacrificially leading and taking responsibility, in in response to all those things being critiqued for the, the better part of a century, Christians increasingly are baptizing a kind of, not to, this is a caricature, but it's a caricature that has enough truth to be embarrassing, a kind of chest-thumping, gorilla with a Bible version of masculinity. Now, I don't mean at this point to characterize any individual, any book, anything else. Please don't say, are you talking about this? No. You, you recognize, don't you, you're smiling, or most of you are smiling, you recognize that there's, there's something in the water, correct? There's, there is this tendency, and Christians have always done this, and it's always been a problem, to do theology by reaction. We do all of our worst theology by reaction, especially our pastoral theology. So where the, especially the Reformed Christian world now, where we are is, in response to the appalling train wreck that is secular, post-third-wave feminism, trans-movement-infected society, we are all crowding over to the other side of the boat, and I submit to you that side of the boat is nearly gunnel under. We're all running around with fire extinguishers, and there is a flood of highly hyper-simplified unga-bunga masculinity, sorry, in Christian circles. So what do you do? What do you do when you're in this kind of place and you're aware that the world is going wild and crazy over there and you become increasingly conscious that some of the more um, uh, widely read Christian sources are going sort of crazy over here. What do you do? Where do you turn? And what I want to suggest to you is we just turn the place we've always turned. Please try and forget for a second what we're supposed to be reacting against and turn with fresh eyes to what the Bible actually says about what real masculinity is. Because of course you find, of course you find in David's mighty men, you find courage, you find strength, you find men who, because they were men, they went and lifted rocks 
and bench-pressed logs and practiced fighting so that they could defend their country and their wives and their children. Those are godly, distinctively masculine character traits. It would be shocking if you were to need defending by your wife in an altercation with some guy, right? Wouldn't that be appalling? I mean, maybe, you know, she's sort of, if she happened to be there with, I don't know. Anyway, let's not talk about that. But, but it's, there's a highly commendable spirit of um, strong, bearded physicality that men, as men, ought to aspire to. They are um, mighty men. And all of us ought to be, as men, seeking to exemplify those characteristics. And women, ladies, you should be looking for somebody who will do that for you, protect you, not victimize you. But I submit to you that in our reformed world right now, that's the side of the boat that's already gone under. That's the flood. And everyone's running around with fire extinguishers. And I want to show you another mighty man. Because that's who we're introduced to in this passage. Just look at verse 1 with me. And one of the most surprising things about how this gentleman... Boaz is introduced. Naomi had a relative of her husband's. I mean, it says a worthy man in the ESV. The phrase is ishkibor chayil, which means something like man of valor and strength. It's exactly the same phrase that's used, that's elsewhere translated, mighty man of valor. It's used numerous times throughout the Bible, or ish. Gibor or Gibor Chayil or some combination. This is the full phrase. This is a mighty man of valor. And no chest thumping appears to be involved. What, what we find here is the other side of godly masculinity. We find a man of character, a man of dignity, a man who is deeply concerned to protect the vulnerable, a a man who's sensitive to how a woman might feel, sensitive to her discomfort, who's looking for the right thing in her, who knows not everybody else is and therefore acts to protect them from, protect her from them, but doesn't do so by threatening to headbutt them or smash their faces against a brick wall. He just has such character he's so respected among the men who work for him that all he has to say is don't touch her and they're like yes sir because he's he's that kind of a man i don't know whether he used to spend every tuesday night having whiskey and cigars he used to spend an occasional night after the harvest with the guys at the threshing floor and it wasn't you know, they're not really excited about the barley harvest because of bread. <laughs> yeah, bread. No, beer, for crying out loud. <laughs> Obviously. Okay, yeah, but I want to introduce you to a man of such thoughtfulness, sensitivity, integrity. This will locate us in the middle of the boat, not threatening to sink it by all crowding over to the same side that many of our reformed friends are already piled up against. You with me? So I want, we're going to work through this. It'll probably just take us the rest of today. We're then going to come back at it and look at the whole thing again next week 
and look at the character of Ruth as an example of godly femininity. But ladies, here you're primarily listening into what you should be looking for and praying for, in, for those of you who are already married and you're stuck with him now, right? It's what you've got to, yeah? Okay, so. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man, no, a mighty man of valor, whose name was Boaz. Okay, why is it significant that he's a relative? Come on. Oh, by the way, remember, I do too much talking in these Bible studies. I want something from you guys. Come on. Why is it significant that he's a relative? Mm-hmm. Mr. Zinn. Very good, very good. It's the um, uh, Leverite marriage law of the Old Testament. He can redeem her. Um, uh, he's supposed to provide children for the widow. So if he's single, obviously, obviously if he's not single, he wouldn't be able to do that. But if he's single, um, maybe he's a man who could marry Naomi and provide children for her. And you're thinking, but he ends up marrying Ruth. I know. We'll come to that. <laughs> um, what else could the... the um, the nearest relative do. Not just marriage, it's something else. For somebody who um, uh, was in financial trouble. Provide. Provide, yeah, very good. Provide what, though? Oh, either all the necessities that they yeah. are required to they come back from basically having nothing. Yeah, very good. Now, you know, probably reap some of their harvest. Right, he's, very good. He's more likely to be able to provide much more yeah, he, you'd hope that he'll provide for his relatives. Yeah, Preston. Redeem debts. Yeah, redeem debts. Redeemer debts. Yeah. yeah, precisely. So, so um, by the land is, is, is how that will be done. So if, if Elimelech's had to sell his land on leaving the country, this is the man who ought to buy it back um, so that it can stay within the family because he's in the family. right? So financial provision, yes. Um, carrying on the family line. We've got, there's somebody, there's a man Hmm. in Bethlehem in the days of the judges. Like, everything rests on his character. Can you see how that's the case? It, if, if this guy is a, an ogre or a sluggard or a fool, Lord help Ruth and Naomi. But if this guy is a man of character, well, the Lord will be helping Ruth and Naomi. And how, does he, how is he described? Um, a worthy man... Um, of the clan of Elimelech, so obviously he's in a position to um, provide these uh, redemption of land, financial provision, marriage if it's appropriate. Whose name is what? Boaz, right. Where have you heard that before? Where have you heard the name Boaz before? It only appears in one other context in the Bible, apart from this guy's name. Uh, yeah, same guy though. So there's this man who's called Boaz. There's one other thing in the Bible that's called Boaz. Yeah, Abby. The pillar outside the front of the temple. There are two pillars. What's the other one called, Abby? Jakin. Boaz and Jakin were the names of the two pillars in the temple. And they didn't have anything on top of them. The idea was as you're looking, you're standing outside the front of the temple, you see Boaz and Jakin and you're looking up. It's as though they're holding the heavens up above your head. It's an image that Paul, the apostle, uses later to talk about pillars in the household of God. People who can be relied on. A man who can be trusted 
to take responsibility for others. You know what Boaz means? You know, all the names, um, or at least many of the names in the book of Ruth seem to be significant, like Naomi, Mara, um, Elimelech means my God is king, my God is the king. Do you know what Boaz means? Anybody know? It's not the sort of thing you get in the footnotes of your Bible. Bo means in him, vo. The but means in and o is him. Az means strength. So Boaz means literally in him is strength. We've got Boaz in the church. Yeah. In him is strength. So everything you know about him so far is positive. Which is good. And Ruth the Moabite says, okay, I'm going to go and we'll come to that next week when we look at her character. Um, end of verse 3 is wonderful and slightly hilarious. What do you think of this? She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. I mean, of all the fields, you know, she's wandering around randomly in the hills outside Jerusalem, like, well, no, Bethlehem, sorry. Where shall I go? Um, and she's, she's going to glean. What's, what does that mean, to glean? Yeah, very good. Pick up the leftovers. So the, the law of the Old Testament provided that uh, the people harvesting grain were not allowed to go back and pick up stuff they'd dropped. They weren't allowed to harvest right to the edge of the field. They weren't allowed to go over the vines and the olive trees twice, but only once. The idea is you're supposed to leave leftovers so that theoretically, if the law's being implemented properly, it's possible for somebody who's willing to work really, really hard to just about survive. It's a, it's a kind of welfare program, but it's welfare only if you're willing to work. So if you were willing to spend eight hours on your hands and knees picking up individual pieces of grain and popping them in, in your shawl, you could probably get enough to make a couple of loaves of bread in a day. Yeah? And so Ruth says, let me go and glean and see, see where I end up. And we'll come to her next week. And so she happens to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Really? Just happens? Under the surface here, you've got a very strong doctrine of the providence of God. God is doing something here, and the the author of Ruth, whoever it is, is almost teasing us, like, she just so happened. Yeah? And Boaz came from Bethlehem, just a reminder of that depraved and wicked city, And he opens his mouth, and the first words he says are, what? Lord be with you. What what do you now know about him? What's the narrator trying to tell us? Hmm? He fears the Lord, yeah. The way he greets his staff, as in the people who work for him, it's a part of the field belonging to Boaz, yeah, signals his allegiance to the living God. Yeah, is that a hand up? No, that's right. And how do they reply? Yeah, the Lord bless you. Is that you, Pastor Shaw? Yeah, and also with you. It's like um, Peter Lightheart tells the story of um, going to a funeral. Um, and um, he, uh, he met somebody he'd not met for years, I think, maybe it was decades. And um, the man greeted him, not liturgically, from the front of church or anything, but just on shaking his hand, said, the Lord be with you. And Peter replied, almost without thinking, he said, and also with you. And he he kind of caught himself and realized that what what had happened is that this relationship, which he'd had with this gentleman who was also attending this funeral, 
think it was a funeral, I'm pretty sure it was. Um, the way that the relationship worked fed upon and replicated the way that our relationship with the living God works. Where your pastor, whoever is leading worship, says at some point in the service something along the lines of, the Lord be with you and also with you. And we greet one another in these sort of liturgically defined forms. This is a liturgy of greeting that tells you this man is used to worshipping God. And, and it's not embarrassing to him. He's the guy that you find out he's a Christian the first day that he joins the company you're working for. Not six months later when, because he's a bit embarrassed, he accidentally mentions it. Yeah? And his men reply, the Lord bless you. Which means one of two things. Because Bethlehem is not a place where you find cavalcades of godly men during the period of the judges. It means one of two things. It either means that Boaz has gone out to find only godly men and will not employ men who are wicked and depraved and drunkards and violent, or he's employed people who, through his influence, have become the kind of men who reply, the Lord bless you. Either he's discerning in who he employs, or he's the kind of man who shapes social contexts to make them more godly and shapes other people to make them more godly or probably it means a mixture of both because in the real world you know you're going to be somewhere between those two things then Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers something that is I think is truly beautiful and is outrageous to the ears of modern feminists what does he say to the, to the young man who's in charge of the reapers. Yeah. Whose young woman is this? Well, have you got, does it say damsel in your, yeah, yeah. Who, he doesn't say, he's, so he come, comes to the field and it's like, here's this woman he doesn't recognise. He's talking about Ruth, okay? Well, first up, just notice, he doesn't recognise her, which means that he's used to recognising people. It means he pays attention. It means maybe there's a whole bunch of women gleaning. It's clear there are from later in the chapter. Um, he notices. He's the kind of guy who doesn't just sort of look the other way when there are the poor and the vulnerable around. He's, he's kind of concerned for them. He's paying attention and he sees this woman there and he doesn't say, who is this? <laughs> or who, who's that young woman? He says, whose young woman is this? Why does he say that? He wants to know whose care she's under. And the answer to it would normally be, if she's married, you know, it's her husband. If she's not married, it's her father. She has neither husband nor father anywhere near. Of course, what that does is that reveals that there's another way a man might ask a question like that. Um, not... Uh, I'm concerned, I want to make sure somebody's looking after you, but, you know, if you're not being looked after, then, uh, right? I mean, and you're kind of, it's sort of funny, but it's sort of not. I mean, that's just how relationships typically are formed in nightclubs up and down the country every Friday and Saturday night, and Sunday night, obviously. 
It's like, you with anybody? Oh, no, all right. Do you want a drink? You know, if, has nobody claimed you? Well, maybe I could have you then. Can you see? So even at this point, you've got this, we know what kind of a man he is. Ruth doesn't know yet. She's not met him. And so Ruth's there sort of gleaning away. And um, this conversation going on between Boaz and his servant. The servant who is in charge of the reapers says, she's the young Moabite woman, and explains, you know, she's, she asked permission to glean. We'll look at that next week, because it says some remarkable things about her character. Remember, this whole book is, among many other things, it, it depicts character and relationships with such richness and this is an amazing picture of what Ruth is like really admirable woman and now Boaz goes to Ruth verse 8 can you see that the first time he's ever spoken to her first time she's ever met him and he's the landowner like he's the big cheese around here then Boaz said to Ruth now listen my daughter why What's he trying to communicate to her? Yeah. I'm not going to hurt you. I wouldn't hurt my daughter. I mean, of course, she doesn't know whether he's got daughters at the moment. Um, but it's, it's a fascinating way. I mean, it's partly, probably, because we discover in chapter 3 that he's older than her, probably quite considerably older than her, because he remarks upon it. You've not gone after one of the young men. You've gone after this old geezer with grey beard and everything. But it, it's, a, it's an affectionate way of addressing somebody without being threatening. Right? It's a, he's, he's trying to not scare her. Now, some people are going to be scared anyway, right? bad experiences. I remember I was walking home once years ago university days I was walking home it was at night and I was walking along the street and um, I saw a woman coming towards me on the same side of the street in England people walk places they don't it's not so big and it's not so hot that we need to drive everywhere so um, anyway I'm walking home and there's this lady coming down the other side the, the, the same the sidewalk towards me she got about 50 yards away and she crossed the street and passed me on the other side and then crossed back over behind me and I was ashamed that I didn't anticipate that. I didn't anticipate that single woman walking home on her own at night might be a bit scared of the thought of a guy who's six foot three and a bit approaching. And I, I could have crossed the road and made it unnecessary for her to do so. Do you know what I mean? It's just like there's a vulnerable woman there in that situation. And I didn't, I didn't spot it. And since then... I mean, obviously, I don't walk around at night that much, but, you know, it, it's just, that lesson's stuck with me, and Boaz has got this nailed. You know, he understands that he is an intimidating person and that women feel vulnerable. Now, listen, my daughter. And then he puts um, flesh on the bones of his concern for her because he's not an idiot. Like, he's a godly enough man and a wise enough man to know that not everybody is as godly or as wise as him. Don't go to glean in another field or leave this one. 
but stay close to, and this is fascinating, my young women and all the feminists go, ah! And all those young women are like, yeah, thank you. Because they understand, like, my, it's, it's, I don't know, it might be referring to his maidservants. It's most likely, because stay close to them means that they're probably gleaning too, and he wouldn't have servants to glean. He wouldn't be allowed to do that. Um, it's more likely that he regards all the women who are reduced to that state of impoverishment and vulnerability, that they have to get on their hands and knees and pick up individual grains of barley in order to stay alive. He regards them all, not as his property, but as his responsibility. I'm responsible for the care of all these people who, in God's providence, they've they've come to me and they're here, and I need to make sure I act in such a way that all of them, I mean, they all stick together and... I will make sure that, as much as I can, they're provided for. Let your eyes be on the field that they're reaping, verse 9, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? (laughs) Because I've, you know, they're young men. And, you know, when they're around me and I say, the Lord be with you, they all say, the Lord bless you. But I know that sometimes what happens, um, you know, I'm not naive. Um, I've told them they are not to touch you or any of the other ladies. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, that this, he's a man's man in a sense that he, he understands the peculiar temptations of single, young men, and he's protecting these vulnerable young women from it. No chest thumping involved. I've charged them not to touch you. They, they, they won't. He has, he's the guy who, when he says, the Lord be with you, they all reply, the Lord bless you. His force of character, the dignity that he displays is, secures that. It's interesting, we, when we talked about the, the qualifications for diaconal ministry, remember the first qualification for a deacon? First on the list? Deacons must be dignified. Yeah, do you remember? And it's, it's this kind of it's gravitas that can't be faked. It's a man who is, the way that he conducts himself is godly and so compelling that it draws other men to behave themselves. And when you're thirsty, you only get thirsty because, you know, it's hot and exhausting, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Fascinating expectations of, you know, the young men will draw water out of the well for the ladies. For the poor, gleaning ladies. Well, yeah, they're my, they're my staff. I've made sure that they, you know, basic provisions for those vulnerable people, they, they lay them on. And anytime you want to go and have a break, just go over there and do it. You're not going to get into trouble. Yeah. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favour in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? And then she re- he replies to that. Uh, 
Let me come to that in a second, because that takes us off in a slightly different direction. Um, let me pause one moment. Thus far, can you see what we've seen? We've seen the character of a man who is self-consciously trying to make a very vulnerable young woman feel protected and actually be protected. He's trying to not intimidate her and so on and so forth. Any questions or any thoughts about that so far? Pause for a second. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. There's somebody I don't recognize among everybody. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's her, yeah. Right. So, so he's, he's certainly heard, um, verse 11, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And the, um, the language there is quite all-embracing. It sounds more than just what his foreman, the man in charge of the reapers, said to him. So it sounds like, yes, he does know the backstory which is itself really instructive because he's the redeemer he, or he's the close relative. And he's, he's been notified and he cares that there's a family member arrived. So he's, he's kind of clocked it away, along with trying to run his business and trying to do everything else. He's now got, oh, great, I'm the Elimelech's widow and somebody else, some Merbite girls arrived. Well, I guess I might run into them, log it away. And they happen to come to his field and he's like, oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it looks like until the foreman speaks to him, though, he doesn't know that this particular woman is, is Ruth. So whose young woman is that? But you know, the way he asks the question is, like we said before, yeah. So other thoughts, questions, comments? It's interesting, isn't it? Like, this is Ishkibor Chayil. This is man of strength and valor. And he's introduced with all these... You know, he's, he's so thoughtful. <laughs> and, like, sensitive... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, she is the young Moabite woman. It keeps highlighting Moabite, Moabite, Moabite. And it, it, it highlights the outsider thing. I mean, and, and she remarks on that, doesn't she? Verse 10. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? She's acutely aware of that aspect of her um, identity. And she, in, even, even in the modern uh, West, in, in America, there is, there is a little bit of this um, cultural baggage associated with being a foreigner. I mean, we don't feel it particularly because people seem to think our accent is really cool. Apparently it sounds intelligent, which is an a illusion I'm happy to cultivate. <laughs> happy if that illusion persists as long. Anyway, but we, it, it's not hard to see, is it? Like in, in, a, in any culture, including our own, there are um, foreigners who feel like they don't really belong and are made to feel like they don't really belong. And she's acutely aware of that. Why are you taking notice of me? I'm not even an Israelite. And it, it serves more t- 
than ever before to, to amplify his... He, I don't care who, we, where you're from. You're, you're a human being. We'll look after you. Mm. Uh, I don't know that it was particularly common during harvest time. Um, Israel was peculiarly um, filled with foreigners all the time, really, because it was on the trade routes. If you look at the geography of the area, it's basically there's Africa to the south and west, if you go you know, through the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and then if you go north, you've got Turkey, what they used to call Asia Minor, and then the whole of Europe. And then you go north and east, and you've got India and China and Afghanistan and all those places. Right? Well, there's des- you've got this narrow strip of land between the Mediterranean Sea and the desert, which is like literally 20 miles wide with the Jordan Valley running up the middle of it. And that's Israel. So if you want to go from Africa to Europe or the east, you have to go through Israel. And that's, that gave Israel a peculiar access to foreigners in the sense that there are always foreigners coming through and so a lot of laws about how you treat the sojourner and of course it means that the, the news of the Lord's blessing to Israel could or should have spread to the far corners of the world um, uh, but it wasn't particularly like it wasn't a place where you'd go to get a job at harvest time it was uh, and, and Moabites would have been known but not particularly common so yeah yeah yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's a mess, but and and, and famine and yeah. I mean, the famine has come to an end, so it might have been that Ruth wasn't alone. But let's keep going, shall we? Because um, verse ten, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she she um, she's clearly struck by his kindness to her. And then he says something fascinating. Boaz answered her, "All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me." And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now I want to highlight a couple of things here. First, very briefly, verse 11 Everything that you've done for your mother-in-law, has, I've, I've found out about that, about how kind you are to grumpy Naomi. That takes on a particular resonance when you get to chapter 3 and chapter 4 and they start moving towards marriage because you start to realise what kind of a young lady he's after. He doesn't say, well, you're gorgeous. I mean, we don't know whether or not she was physically attractive. What we do know is that her character stood out to him. And that's going to be important in chapter 3 and chapter 4. But notice what else she sa- he says. Um, the Lord, verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. He wants above all else for her that the Lord should provide for her. The Lord bless her. He recognizes in what she's done that she's actually seeking refuge from the Lord because all that you've done for your father and for, for your mother-in-law has been told me, presumably including her profession of faith back from chapter one. He knows that she's a believer. And he, he wishes or uh, almost prays for her that the Lord would bless her. And given how he's described later, 
as the redeemer, you start to see he's the one through whom the blessing comes. In fact, that little phrase, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, we'll look at this in chapter three, but the the imagery of wings was used of the Lord himself hovering over his people. Jesus spoke of um, longing to gather his people like a mother hen under his wings, under her wings, sorry. Um, When Ruth goes to Boaz in chapter 3, she asks him, spread your wings over me. And so he's being set up to be portrayed as the means by which the Lord blesses her. And that's really the, the crucial point that emerges at this juncture for us from that exchange. Boaz is portrayed as though he is the one through whom the Lord is going to bless Ruth. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her. Can you see what he's doing? He wants to be the human vehicle or means of God's blessing to this woman. You you certainly see that as the, the story unfolds. And certainly, in the light of those later um, movements towards marriage for them, you see something very significant about how a man ought to relate to a woman to whom he's married. Your responsibility is the sanctification of your wives. I'll just leave it, I won't just leave it there. Let me thump it a few more times. (laughs) Um, if If your wife is ungodly, it's not that you're culpable for her ungodliness, but you are responsible before God for doing something about it. And not just if she's ungodly, and that doesn't mean like you rebuke her in the name of the Lord for her ungodly. It's like, no, 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 because in the real world, what actually happens is that we've all got rough edges that need to be, um, you know, rounded off a little bit, yeah? And how do you, as a husband, so love your wife that over the years she grows in holiness. And you do so in this unbelievably gentle, sensitive, gracious, unintimidating way. It's not about telling your wife she needs to shape up. That's, that, that's, that's, how, you, that's how you talk to a dog. No, it's not how you talk to a dog. It's how you talk to a dog if you want it to bite you. <laughs> and you deserve it. Right? It's, you, how, how do you... How do you nurture uh, a precious, fragile, beautiful, vulnerable human being so that over the years, through your love for her, gentlemen, she becomes just oozing First uh, Peter 3 beauty, meekness and gentleness of spirit and joyfulness in the Lord why do you think there are qualifications for deacons and elders' wives? It tells you what kind of man you are. So how would you do it? I mean, what would you do? <laughs> like, if you, if you really wanted to, to cultivate that kind of Christ-like beauty in your wife, or your future wife, which is analogous to the beauty that Christ is cultivating in his bride, what would you do? Well, you might try this. Verse 14. And at mealtime, 
Boaz said to her, get the food ready, love. <laughs> no, no, he said, come here and have a seat and um, eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. I, that's, that's the ESV trying to do something with a, a Hebrew phrase. It's like you, you've got like a piece of bread, basically, you dip it in the wine. Have you ever been to an Italian restaurant where they gave you um, beautiful like Italian focaccia bread and like really classy olive oil and balsamic vinegar. I once went to a restaurant in London. I was, I was visiting some friends of mine who worked for a think tank called Christian Concern. I was there actually with Joe Boot. Hands up if you heard, Joe, heard of Joe Boot? Yeah, I know Joe Boot. Yeah, seriously. I'll try and get him on the podcast at some point. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so we go to this Italian restaurant and I tell you, I could have just eaten just bread and just that olive oil and just that balsamic vinegar. It's like, oh, it's gorgeous. And I don't know what it was like in, first, in Bronze Age Israel, but I like to think <laughs> that there they are, you know, and, and Boaz is like, get your grubby Moabite hands off. No, come here. Hey, sit down and have something to eat. She's like, you've got to be kidding me. I, just didn't, I told you I'm a foreigner. And he's like, shut up, just sit down. No, don't shut up. Just please sit down. <laughs> So she sat beside the reapers, and this is absolutely mind-blowing. Look, he passed to her roasted grain. Why is that so unbelievable in the ancient world, and frankly in the modern world as well? Why, what's so remarkable about that? Yeah, completely flipped, as in flipped around from what it would normally be. Um, in the, I've got... I've got um, bunch of, here I, I, I dug up these quotations from this outstanding book, um, Paul E. Miller, A Loving Life. Got to get this book. If you get this book, you don't need to come to my Bible studies until the end of this series. Well, you can anyway, but, but it's a great book. Um, this is um, uh, a quote from Miller. Boaz's humble serving reveals the man. From the point of view of traditional cultures, Boaz's serving of Ruth is incredible. Men don't usually serve women in traditional cultures. They feel they will lose their dignity. In liberal cultures such as our own, men are so concerned to treat women as equals that they don't serve them either. Men become passive, almost spineless with women. A real test of a man's character is how he treats women. And he, and he sort of sits there and you know, abjectly humiliating himself in front of all his kind of manly 24-year-old servants. Here, have some of this. It's absolutely beautiful and absolutely staggering. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And so it's like one of those really classy restaurants where they discreetly bring you a take a a to-go box without you even asking for it. You know? (laughs) Like, here, have this. And you might need this. Right? And then it gets really, I mean, it starts to get beyond a joke. Um, And she rose up to glean, and Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and don't rebuke her. Now, what on earth is going on there? So I've, I've, Abby's laughing because we, in family Bible classes years ago, we did this. Remember? 
So you really, you don't remember, naughty girl. You do remember, I know you do. Um, so nobody in my family is allowed to answer this question. Um, what's going on here? If she gathers among the sheaves, don't rebuke her, and even pull some out and sort of leave it lying around. What, what's, what, what's Boaz doing? Leaving breadcrumbs? Yeah, leaving breadcrumbs. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, he's setting her up for success, so she'll have loads. I mean, basically the way it works, just look with me at the details. Verse 15, first, let her glean even among the sheaves and don't reproach her. So what, what will be happening is the harvesters go through the field with a big curved sickles and they hack all the grain down. They gather it into bundles. They tie the bundles into sheaves and then they'll stack the sheaves. So the, you, at the, the corner of the field, you have this big stack of uh, stalks of, of grain with, with the heads of grain, the ears of corn or barley on them. Now, obviously, in that kind of area, there's all the kind of grain on the floor because it's fallen off as they've been, been putting it there. And you could e- easily imagine a kind of slightly naive Moabite who doesn't really speak the language or understand the culture saying, oh, ooh, ooh, look, there's lots over here. <laughs> I'm just gathering, just gleaning, and she's scooping up all the... You're not allowed to do that. That's been harvested, okay? That, that's in the pile for the harvest. And Boaz is like, you know, if she does that, don't, don't rebuke her, don't tell her off. She doesn't understand the culture. She's not read Leviticus or Exodus. And so she doesn't really know the rules. And I would hate for this poor, vulnerable, Moabite young woman to be um, humiliated or worse, rebuked, because she just, she just didn't, really get, you know, she didn't really get our culture. You know, he makes the allowances for her misunderstandings. He's, he's not saying, look, you're in my house now. You jolly well do things the way that I do things, all right? I'm the man around here. I'm the landowner. You obey the law. It's, it's like, no, no, she probably didn't get it. And, um, uh, yeah, so if she, you know, it doesn't really matter. We'll, 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 we'll flex to accommodate her. And, in fact, speaking of accommodating her, look, there's so many women around here and, you know, Maybe she won't be as fast at gleaning as some of the other ladies. She might not end up with very much. So just throw some stuff around all over the floor so that she's got some stuff to glean. And you can imagine this ridiculous spectacle of all these servants. They're all sort of throwing stuff around like this. And Ruth is like, she's on her hands and knees. and like, why are you throwing grain at me? And, and she's like, I guess Boaz told us to, sorry. And you're like, okay, um, thanks. And so she ends up, at the end of the day, she gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she'd gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And you look at the footnote for an ephah, it was about a three-fifths of a bushel or 22 litres, and grain is about the same density of water, so 22 litres, 22 kilograms, 45 pounds, which is one of those big weight plates from the gym, right? The ones that you have, like, four on each side when you're doing deadlifts, Aaron, okay? Yeah? And, and Gracie's got to carry it home, bless her. She's like... <laughs> Like, this, this totally implausibly large amount of, of food that she's gleaned. And, she, and it's only possible because this guy has been looking out for her. And so she gets home, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man. Because there must be a man involved in this. This is just not how gleaning normally works. Blessed be the man. Where did you hear that before? Someone. Blessed is the man who does not 
Walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the blessed man doesn't want anything to do with these losers, scoffers, mockers, ungodly, but he's, he loves the law, and he meditates on it day and night, so that then when the crunch comes, it's not just that he'll keep the law, he'll go above and beyond the law. What the, the law requires him to permit this woman to glean. It does not require him to give her water, to offer to protect her from his men, to welcome her to his table, to give her extra grain, to let her glean among the sheaves and have his servants throwing stuff all over the place that she can't help tripping over and ends up going home with more corn barley than she can carry. It doesn't require him to do any of that stuff. And it certainly doesn't... Well, we'll come to that next time. But he just he's... The blessed man is not the theological pugilist boxer, fighter, who can win the debates. The blessed man is the one who has been so shaped by the law of God that it's just like this man sanctifies every woman who comes near him. And just loves and provides for them. And Naomi is a a woman of the world as as well in the sense that she knows what's going on. There must be some guy somewhere. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today. And the the sentence in English looks slightly prosaic, but it's, it's got the name Boaz at the end of it. And the way that it works in Hebrew is such that it's almost like leading up to the climax. The name... The name of the man with whom I work today is, drumroll please, Boaz. He's a man of strength, which is to say sensitive, kind, gracious, generous-spirited. The kind of man who will welcome a nobody to his table and then serve her. Because he's a man of strength. And then Naomi gives a really long speech, which is interesting, and we'll look at that next week. Okay, so what we've done, let's just recap and then we'll see if there's any questions at the end. We've, we've seen the context that we've come from, and um, borrowing from C.S. Lewis, I've suggested to you that... Um, Reformed Christians, we ourselves and others like us, are in danger in reaction against the excesses of feminism and the transgender movement and crazy secularism over here. We're in danger of all crowding over towards a vision of masculinity that is about to tip the boat over. And uh, if you get your theology online, you get everything you deserve. You'll never learn decent theology on the internet. And what I've suggested to you is the solution to this is to stop reacting to the culture and start responding to the Bible. What the Bible does is sets out a picture, of course, masculine strength and courage and hard work and, if necessary, the capacity to use physical violence to defend those who are precious to you. All those things are what a mighty man of valor is like. And here you find the other side of a mighty man of valor who's sensitive, thoughtful, gracious, kind, all those things that we've talked about. And if we will only stop 
getting our theology on Twitter or X or whatever it's now called and, and get it from the Bible, we will have a much more secure uh, basis for what we're striving to be as men. Ladies, frankly, you'll have a better choice of husbands. There'll be better men for you to choose from when the time comes, which of course means that ladies, you're going to want to be the kind of young lady that a man like this would be attracted to, and we'll come to that next week. But we have one minute to go before quarter past, and then we've got the extra three minutes, of course, at the end. We can have that. So, yeah, Mrs. Claghorn. Yeah, um, verse 23, she gleaned until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. Um, the, the barley and wheat harvests were not entirely overlapping uh, in general, but like anywhere, they would have varied locally. Different varieties of crops, uh, different climatic conditions, different years they'd come in at different times. But in general, barley, then wheat. Yeah. So we, we can't be sure. It might be that they were going on at the same time. It certainly looks, though, like either she stayed for longer or when all the gleaning's done here, she's still welcome to, you know, she, she can go in both places. There's no restrictions on her. Most likely, she just stayed for longer, yeah. The, the reason for my hesitancy is in chapter three, um, he's winnowing barley at the threshing floor. So, um, I don't know. Some, some scholars suggest that actually what's going on in verse 23 is your, that stretches way off into the future. She's, she's still gleaning after the events of chapter three. But, but it's not obvious because it looks like chapter 3 and 4 kind of happen quite fast and then they're engaged and then, you know, the end of the book comes. So, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Yeah, Erin, uh, yeah. As you're going through, um, kind of highlighting the last and the previous three things, it kind of struck me that every time we were reading the book of Ruth, I've kind of viewed Bethlehem and kind of where they were as like this very Christian area. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So Bethlehem is not historically a really beautiful, wonderful place full of godly people. So for Boaz, like we said, absolutely. And also for Jesus, it's a picture, Boaz is a picture of Jesus in that sense too, in that Jesus did not come into a wonderful world that was all waiting for him and very enthusiastic about the Messiah having been born. No, he's light in the darkness. And so Jesus, like Boaz, confronts evil but he does so, I mean, Jesus does so in a very surprising way as well, doesn't he? You know, shall we call fire down from heaven to destroy them? No, stupid. I'm going to die for them, you idiot. That's how Jesus confronts evil. Um, in a very Boaz-like sort of a way. And we'll see his sacrifice, particularly in chapter 4, when we get to the details of chapter 4, he's really laying it all down. 
yeah. Any final thoughts? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, uh, any kind of attraction in um, verse 10. It's tough, you know, because the, the word for favor is chain, which just means like grace. It's, it's the disposition that God has towards us. And so really in that context, he's, he's pictured as a, um, like a, a Messiah figure, a redeemer figure, who's showing favor to an outsider, Jesus and the Samaritan woman, Christ and his church, and so on. But it's very hard not to read it in the light of chapter 3 and chapter 4. And then you look back and you think, yeah, maybe, maybe he was attracted to her character. And I think probably that's the case too. Because when you read a book, you, know, you read it through the first time, and then you read it through the second time, and you see things, you're like, oh, I hadn't seen, yeah. Because of what happened later, that, that gets a new spin on it. And you read it through ten times, and, then, and you see more of that. So I think Ruth is that kind of a book as well. I think probably there's something stirring in Boaz at this point, which makes it all the more remarkable that he's so restrained, because frankly, nobody was going to stop him if he was going to take advantage of her. Nobody would have stopped him. Nobody could have stopped him. He's the landowner. He's the the big man, and nobody else in Bethlehem is restraining themselves. In somebody else's field, you might be assaulted by the landowner. Here, you won't be. Yeah. Regardless of my feelings, you know, you're 30, 40 years younger than me and you're, I'm attracted to you, but my daughter is how he addresses her. Um, all right. Um, incidentally, and I'll say this one thing, just I know this is over time now. Um, if, if all men, I'm now talking particularly about older men, men late 20s and beyond, if all men looked at younger women as my daughter, we would have a lot fewer problems with uh, sexual unfaithfulness, pornography, and so on and so forth. We'll come back and revisit that in future. But that's just something to think about. And particularly for... Uh, I'm 48, right? And um, to, to look at younger, younger ladies and think, my daughter, because that's somebody's daughter. It, it's a profoundly helpful way of reinforcing within ourselves the right kind of disposition to precious, vulnerable ladies. Let me encourage you guys, I'm talking to older men now, to, to have that attitude to younger women. Yeah? All right, let's pray, then we're done. Merciful Father, thank you for this remarkable character, this man of strength and valour who displays such sensitivity and really shames our superficial views of masculinity with the depth of his. And we ask that uh, you would enrich our lives and our relationships, particularly the marriages represented here uh, at All Saints and and that we pray will take place in the future. We pray that we would have more men like Boaz drawing out the Christ-like beauty and indeed enhancing the Christ-like beauty of their wives by treating them 
in this kind of way. We pray for the ladies among us, and particularly looking forward to next week, that every day you'll be cultivating within them the uh, corresponding virtues that we will see in Ruth when we come back to this passage next time, so that all of us in different ways may come to reflect Christ's holiness and Christ's love for his bride. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. The Lord bless you. Pastor Shaw, what do you want us to do with tables and chairs? Two rows or two sets of... All right. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Oh. How are you doing, my sweet? You all right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we are locked out. You were locked out there? Yes. Oh, my goodness. And we went to the store and I don't... <laughs> <laughs> you got, but you got locked out. Right? You got locked out. Oh my goodness! Well, my phone's not on. I need to turn it off now. Hold on. You still listen to this recording? Well, I hope you had a good evening.